1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Death ruins everything. All the greatest accomplishments of mankind are eventually worn down by the inevitable reality of death. Think of all the emperors, conquerors, kings, and queens who have ever lived on the face of the earth, from Julius Caesar to Genghis Khan to Elizabeth I to Alexander the Great. All of them came on the world scene, held power, ruled over empires and dominions, instilled fear, inspired awe, and then died. They're now relevant only to the history books. They are of no account. My guess is that not even the humblest person alive today would be willing to swap places with them at this moment. Think about all the people who have lived, who have done extraordinary things. Gertrude Benham, was a woman who circumnavigated the globe seven times. She climbed roughly 300 mountains of 10,000 feet elevation or greater. She was one of the very first people ever to scale Mount Kilimanjaro. Linus Pauling was a chemist who first worked out the nature of chemical bonds. He discovered the cause for sickle cell anemia, developed an accurate oxygen sensor for submarines, helped create synthetic plasma, won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1954, and then was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1962 for his opposition to Cold War activities. That's two Nobel Prizes in one life. I don't know everyone in this room, but I'm guessing he's got two more than all of us combined. Satyendra Nath Bose was a physicist who worked on quantum mathematics. He worked with Albert Einstein to found Bose-Einstein statistics and discover the Bose-Einstein condensate. So I don't know anything about physics, but I'm pretty sure when you're sharing credit with Albert Einstein and your name comes first, you're good at your job. Okay, so what do all those people have in common? They lived extraordinary lives. They accomplished much more than most of us could ever hope for. And they're all dead. Their accomplishments might live on in some way, but who cares? They themselves are largely forgotten. Even if they're not, they can no longer enjoy the things they've worked for. Death ruins everything. But maybe that's okay. Maybe, maybe we're supposed to find meaning 
and happiness, not in our accomplishments. Maybe, maybe the fact that all those things get wiped away by death is a, a sign that we're supposed to look somewhere else for hope and meaning. Maybe we're supposed to look to family, to, to more personal, less sort of material things. Maybe that's where we find meaning and purpose that transcends even the grave. But death ruins that as well, doesn't it? Even the sweetest enjoyments here on earth are tinged with a kind of sadness because ultimately they can't last. I remember about five years ago, I was taking out the trash on Christmas night. So after dinner, we were cleaning up. I was taking the trash out. It had been an absolutely wonderful day, right? Full of family, friends, love, good food, happiness. And I remember standing over the the open trash can with a bag of garbage in my hand, and I was frozen, paralyzed for a moment by the fact that this might very well be the best Christmas I would ever have. My kids were at the perfect age to enjoy the day, old enough to be low maintenance, not old enough to be cynical about Christmas. My parents, Karen's parents, were both there and in good health. I was in good health. Everything was right. And yet, as much as I enjoyed the day, standing there over the trash can, all I could think about was the fact that it couldn't last. Kids would grow up and move on, physically and relationally. Parents would grow old. My health would eventually fail. Nothing about the joy that I'd experienced that day could be permanent. Within a couple of generations, I would largely be forgotten, even by my own descendants. Happy Easter. Right, we could go on and on though. If you're of a depressive frame of mind as I was writing this introduction, you could just keep listing out all of the things in life that are ruined by the reality of death. Right, the things that you cherish, the things you believe in, will probably seem ridiculous and antiquated 100 years from now. Your life's work will ultimately be left in the hands of someone you don't know and probably won't like very much. Death ruins everything. And the worst thing is we know it's coming. It's not like it's a surprise ending and we get to live our lives in sort of blissful ignorance. We live every day with the knowledge that these good things can't last. That we'll have to say goodbye to everything and everyone we love at the grave. Can't take anything with you. No friend, no family can accompany you on the journey. Death robs us of everything and everyone that we love. And so what do we do about it? How do we live in light of that reality? I think there are a few common ways that human beings over the centuries and millennia have sort of developed and cultivated in order to help them cope. Some people, sadly, are just crippled by the knowledge, and they can never really move on and have a healthy approach to life. The book of Hebrews talks about, in chapter 2, verse 15, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Some people can never get past it. Others adopt a eat, drink, and be merry approach. The Apostle Paul mentions that in the passage we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or two weeks ago. Basically, you might as well live for what you can get now because it's all going to be over. I think what most people do, and maybe what you're trying to do right now, is ignore reality. This was the conclusion that Blaise Pascal reached all the way back in the 17th century. He wrote this. He says, man wishes to be happy and only wishes to be happy and cannot wish not to be so. But how will he set about it? To be happy 
he would have to make himself immortal. But not being able to do so, it has occurred to him to prevent himself from thinking of death. The only thing which consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet this is the greatest of our miseries. For it is this which principally hinders us from reflecting upon ourselves and which makes us insensibly ruin ourselves. Without this, we should be in a state of weariness. And this weariness would spur us to seek a more solid means of escaping from it. But diversion amuses us and leads us unconsciously to death. You see what Pascal is saying. In order to be happy, we have to conquer death because death ruins everything. We need to be immortal. We need to find some way to continue on past death. But since we can't, all we can do is distract ourselves. Endless scrolling on the internet, video games, television, books, sports, music, sex, drink. Right? We can use those things to create the illusion that death isn't coming from, for us. We can distract ourselves. That way you can enjoy Christmas with your family. You can have something like an enjoyable life. But as Pascal points out, it's a, it's a solution that's worse than the problem. Those distractions prevent us from pursuing a real solution to the issue of death. We wind up wasting our lives on amusements, living as people who might as well already be dead. Well, things have only gotten worse in the 400 years since Pascal took his turn in the pine box. We're much better at forestalling death these days. When it, when it does come, we prefer that it happens someplace away from home, like in a hospital, so we can separate it off from our lives. We're much better at amusing ourselves. Technology has developed ways for you to ignore the reality of your impending death 24-7. So the role of the artist in our society, many have commented on, is, is largely to sound the alarm to try and wake us up from our self-imposed stupor. So the author David Foster Wallace has written, he says, I strongly suspect a big part of a writer's job is to aggravate this sense of entrapment and loneliness and death in people, to move people to countenance it, since any possible human redemption requires us first to face what's dreadful, what we want to deny. I, I admire Wallace's courage, but I can't help but wondering, even then, what do we do? Living with an awareness of death might be the brave thing to do, but does it really matter in the end? It's not at all clear what kind of redemption Wallace has in mind, or what he can think of that would really matter in the end, in the face of death. After all, whether you live with courage or frittier days away with mindless entertainment, the same fate befalls all of us. I think if we are able to grasp something of that universal human condition, the fact that death ruins everything. We, we might be prepared to understand what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he writes there in verse 55 in the passage Kelly just read for us about the sting of death. As we thought about last week, human beings were not created to die. We were not meant for this ending. It was only when we embraced rebellion against God, when we went our own way and did our own thing, when we did what the Bible calls sin, ignoring God's law, living as we pleased. It was only at that point that death entered into the world. 
So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, Paul says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. It's a bit of a confusing statement, but I think when we understand it, it's the human condition in a nutshell. We have sinned against God. We have rebelled against his law. And so we live with this sting of death constantly hovering over us. It seems we're destined to live in a world where everything is always ruined by the reality of death. But thankfully, friends, this is where the sermon turns. That's not the final word. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see the Apostle Paul is telling us about all that God has planned for us. He has a future in mind for us that doesn't end in the crippling and humiliating defeat of death. Our lives don't terminate in the meaninglessness of the grave. But Paul tells us here, God has glory in store for us. As we've seen over the past few weeks, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians 15, our hope for the future is inextricably bound up in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in the chapter, Paul calls him the first fruits. It's a term from agriculture that, that indicates a, a portion, the very first portion of a harvest that indicated that the rest of the harvest was coming. But Paul says Jesus, in that way, in his resurrection, is the first fruits. Because he was raised from the dead, there's, there's a guarantee that we also will be raised from the dead. He's risen from the grave, and because his story doesn't end in shame and weakness, and because we're with him, Paul says we too will one day rise from the grave. That's why Paul says there in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the celebration at the heart of this passage, and we'll, Lord willing, loop back to see it in just a little bit. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus, he's given us victory over the grave, over death, over that great enemy of every human. And so as we look at this passage this morning, let's, let's look at three things in particular that I think we can pull out of what Paul says here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. First, let's look and see the mystery. Second, let's see the victory. And then finally, let's see the strength. So three things, a mystery, victory, and strength. So let's look then at the mystery. Look there in verses 50 to 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. We read this. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. All through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been insisting on the, the physical, literal, bodily, actual, in time and space resurrection of Jesus. And there in verse 50, he, he brings it back to the, the point of the passage we saw last week, that we need to be changed in order to spend eternity with God. He says there, flesh and blood. So the, the body that you're living in right now, 
the body that's destined for the grave, it's not suited for the world that God has planned. It has within it a principle of perishability. Our bodies, our flesh and blood, are are on the way to decay. And so Paul says they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now in context here, when Paul says the kingdom of God, what he's saying is he's talking about the the state of affairs that will characterize eternity. He's, He's talking about what we might sort of colloquially refer to as life in heaven. We see this, I think, most clearly at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where the apostle John is shown a picture of what it will be like at the end of time. Uh, So uh, listen here, this is Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. I think this is a picture of what Paul means when he talks about the kingdom of God. John writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. See, this world that John sees will go on forever. A world with no pain, a world with no tears, no death, a world with no mourning. It'll be a world that is renewed and restored and recreated where we will live in the presence of God as we were meant to do. But friends, it's obvious that you and I are not ready to live in that world. Your your organs, your knees, your joints, your bones, they weren't made to last forever. Right here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls our body, our flesh and blood, he calls it perishable. He calls it mortal. But it's not just that. Our souls are not ready. Revelation is clear that that sin cannot enter into that new kingdom that God is bringing to, to pass. There will be no anger there. No selfishness, no lust, no pride. None of it is allowed in that world because otherwise it would just be ruined like this one. And so what the point Paul's been making here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we need to be transformed if we have any hope of living in that world. We need to be made imperishable. We need to be clothed in bodies that don't decay. We we need to be given Uh, flesh and blood that that will not rot or weaken or wear down. We need souls that are purified and free from sin. As Paul puts it here in our passage, the end of verse 52, we need to be changed. So verse 51 then comes as very good news. Uh, Paul says that he actually has a mystery to reveal to us. Here, that word mystery simply means something that we wouldn't be able to figure out on our own. Something that pure reason and observation wouldn't be able to to conclude. And Paul says there in verse 51 that the mystery is that there is a coming day when we will be changed. When all the things that that are wrong with us, that are broken about us, both in our bodies and our souls, will be finally fixed. 
And that necessary transformation will happen. Paul says there in verse 51, we shall not all sleep. That is to say, some people will still be alive when this happens. But he says some will have died, some will have fallen asleep. But he says this, we shall be changed. There in verse 52, the dead will be raised just as Christ was raised long ago on that Easter Sunday. And we will receive everything we need to live in that perfect world forever. Paul says there that it'll take place, this transformation, this change that we so desperately need will take place in a moment's time. There in verse 52, he says, it'll be in the twinkling of an eye. It'll be in an instant. It's not some long, drawn-out process of evolution that unfolds over time, but a tremendous change that happens all of a sudden. And there Paul says in verse 52 that it's going to happen at the last trumpet. In verse 53, he again talks about the trumpet will be sounded and all of us will change. Right, that idea of a trumpet is, a, is an image used a lot in the Old Testament by the prophets to speak of the coming day, the day of the Lord, the day when God would interrupt history, uh, bringing it to a conclusion. The trumpet was a way of alerting the world to come, as it were, for the day of judgment the day of vindication for God's people, the day of justice for God's enemies. Jesus himself used this idea of a trumpet as a way of talking about his own return in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. It's clearly that's what Paul's talking about here. When he talks about the last trumpet sounding, he's talking about the return of the Lord Jesus from heaven. Jesus was crucified, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and that's where he is now. And we await his return. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, For the Lord himself, that is Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This great change, this instantaneous transformation, when the dead are raised and given new glorified bodies, Paul says it will happen in an instant when the Lord Jesus returns. He will descend from heaven. We will be caught up to meet him. And then did you see there in 1 Thessalonians 4 the great promise that Paul gives us? He says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Friends, that's the great joy that we have to look forward to. That is the joy of that future world. That's the best part of being changed and transformed. You will be with the Lord forever. Friends, that's what makes Easter such good news. Not just that Jesus is alive, though that is very good, but that the Jesus who rose and ascended into heaven is going to come back and make everything new, and we will be with him forever. That's what makes heaven, heaven. That's what makes paradise, paradise. You remember what Jesus said to the thief hanging on the cross next to him? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's the being with Jesus part that makes it worth living for. That's what makes this something that we can encourage one another with, as Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
And so, friends, the question for us this Easter morning is this. Are you ready? Are you prepared for this moment? Are you living in anticipation now of that great day? I think a great deal of the Christian life is wrapped up in this mystery that Paul unfolds for us here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Because there are moments when life is full of joy, when you are happy and healthy, when relationships are life-giving, when your surroundings are pleasing, and you have a sense that you're in the right place. Those moments are real, but they're only a foretaste. The best moments in life are a glimpse. They're they're an appetizer that's meant to, to whet your hunger for the real thing, for the main course that's coming. And there are also times when life is so painful, when you are lonely, discouraged, full of regret, when the results just don't seem to justify all the effort you've put in, when you're tempted, when you're called to painful self-denial. Well, friends, those moments are real as well. But what Paul is showing us here is that they aren't the end of the story either. Those moments are like hunger pains. They remind us that this life is not the main course, that, that we're looking forward to something that we've been promised. And friends, that produces a sober joy in us that steals us for the long haul. It enables us to keep going in dark times. See, Christian, it is crucial that you don't just file this away and be content with understanding it and affirming its truthfulness. Otherwise, Paul could have saved his ink. If it doesn't really matter, if it doesn't change your life at all, then then Paul wouldn't tell us. No, he... He wants us to know the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to tell us these things so that we'll know them now, not find them out later, but so that we can live our days now. We have to be people whose lives are shaped by the truth that there is going to be a day when the trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend and we will all be changed and made fit for eternity in the kingdom of God. That's the mystery. That's the thing that we wouldn't know unless God himself told us. Uh, Let's move on then and see the second thing for us to see this morning, and that is the victory. We see that in verses 54 and 55. Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There in verse 54, Paul says, when all of this happens, when we are changed, when we trade in perishable mortality for imperishable immortality, Paul says something's going to happen. Something will come to pass. Specifically, he says, two ancient prophecies will finally be fulfilled. There at the end of verse 54, Paul quotes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, written many centuries before Paul was alive. In Uh, The book of Isaiah, the prophet saw how the world would be brought to a close. And it's a beautiful picture. Uh, Surely, this entire picture that Isaiah saw is in Paul's mind there in verse 54 when he he drops his his reference to it. So let me read you what Isaiah said. It's It's a vision that's almost too wonderful for words. 
Isaiah sees a, a mountain, a, a place that's raised up above, above all the, the noise and filth and violence and suffering and pain and weakness that characterizes human life. I, Isaiah writes this in Isaiah chapter 26. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Can you see what this vision of the end times, you see how closely it, it, it sort of maps onto what John sees in Revelation 21, many centuries later. You see what this vision shows us about our God. He could have planned any future for you that he wanted. In our sin, what we deserve is eternal justice. We deserve to be held accountable for all eternity. We deserve to live in a world just like this one, just emptied of God's mercy and kindness. But instead, when the prophets saw visions of eternity, what, what, what flows out of God towards you is this. A feast, right? Not meager sustenance, not just enough to keep you alive, but the best food, Isaiah says, the very best wine imaginable, a feast that will maximize your body's brand new capacity to enjoy flavor and appreciate texture. Whatever limitations you currently experience, whatever allergies, sensitivities, and, and hang-ups might limit your ability to enjoy yourself when you sit down at the table, they'll all be gone. You will feast on that day for the first time in your entire existence, free from the covering that, that exists over all people, free from what Isaiah calls the shadow that we've all lived with every moment of our lives free from the reproach that, that follows God's people every day. Because, as Paul points out, quoting Isaiah here, death will be destroyed. Friends, on that day, the food won't be the star of the show. The point is never the gift, but the giver. And Isaiah tells us that our mouths on that day will be full of joy, full of gladness, because we will be with the Lord Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's not the only prophecy that Paul sees being fulfilled at that great day, the return of the Lord Jesus. There in verse 55, he quotes from the book of the prophet Hosea, also written centuries earlier. It says there in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Friends, this is a taunt. This is, this is a, a mockery that God's people can sing on that day at their ancient foe. One day we will be able to, to say, death, 
You're not so tough now, are you? You've got nothing to throw at us. Death, all the graves are empty. The funeral homes are out of business. The coffin makers are busy making tables for the feast. But don't forget what we saw earlier, back in verse 56. Death does have a sting. Death has a sting in its tail, and sin has the power of the law behind it. That is to say, there is a barrier that stands between us and that world that Isaiah sees. There's a barrier that stands between us and the world that John envisioned. And that is the power of sin. The guilt that cries out against us, that argues that we don't actually deserve that world, we deserve justice. That we don't deserve eternal joy, but rather eternal wrath. But again, friends, the news here is good. Because God has taken care of that problem as well. That's why Isaiah says we have waited for his salvation. It is all the Lord's doing. God sent his son to take on human flesh. And the Lord Jesus came, the son of God in human flesh. And he lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father. The life that you and I should have lived. He's the only man who's ever lived who didn't deserve to die. He did deserve eternal life. He deserved eternal blessedness. But in his great love, he didn't come to enjoy those things, but he went to the cross and he died, taking on himself the punishment and the wrath and the death that we deserve. Jesus felt the full sting of death. He hung on the cross under the power of sin, but he rose from the dead as a conqueror, in victory all, over all of those things, so that whoever would turn from their sin and put their trust in him would have their sins forgiven and would rise from the grave one day to meet him in the air and spend eternity with him. Now, in Christ, death has no final sting. Sin has no ultimate power over us. We can be sure that we will be there at death's funeral. No wonder Paul says there in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen mystery. We've seen victory. Let's conclude this morning briefly by looking at the strength. This is Paul's conclusion to all that he's been teaching us in chapter 15 about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our eternal future. He sees in these truths a real source of strength for our lives. Remember, he's already made the case in chapter 15 that if death really is the end, if our hope is only in this life, then all of our work for the Lord ultimately is meaningless. Paul has told us we would have no power for witness, no newness of life to walk in, no great high priest to go to, no friend with whom we can have communion. But because Jesus is alive, because we will certainly be raised with him, then we know that our lives as they're lived now and our service to the Lord will be more than worth it in the end, whatever costs we might experience in this life. But look there in verse 58. Paul concludes this way. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see Paul's heart on display here. He addresses the Corinthians 
as my beloved brothers. His care for his reader is so obvious. He wants us to take what he is saying to heart. And look, what he wants for us is for us ultimately to abound in the work of the Lord. You see that there in verse 58. What he wants for us is for us to abound in the work of the Lord. That doesn't mean that he wants them to quit their day jobs and become missionaries or pastors. No, the the work of the Lord here is everything he's been saying throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. Everything he's been pleading with the Corinthians to do and to change in light of the gospel throughout the whole letter. Remember, he's been pleading with the Corinthians to serve one another humbly, using the gifts that the Spirit has given them to build up and edify the church. He's been calling the Corinthians to live holy and countercultural lives in the midst of a debauched pagan society. He's going to call next week, we'll see it, Lord willing, in chapter 16, he's going to call the Corinthians to give generously, to support the needs of other Christians. And so here, Paul is pleading with them to do all of that work and to do lots of it, to orient their lives around this kind of service to God. But Paul knows it's not easy. He knows that the realities of life tend to get in the way, that it's hard to abound in the work of the Lord. There are things that might make it seem like our work is in vain. Right? If you live your life open-handedly, loving other people, serving them the way the Apostle Paul did, loving the way Paul's calling us to love, you're probably not going to get an immediate reward that will make you feel like it's been worth it. Some people can't pay you back. Some people won't notice or appreciate what you do. Some people will even turn against you. You'll point people to Christ, and they'll walk away. Friends, life in a fallen world is discouraging. It feels sometimes like the center will not hold and that things are falling apart. Families drift apart. Friendships come to painful ends. Disasters wipe out a lifetime's worth of work. And so the danger that the Apostle Paul sees here is that we might be blown off course, that we would be discouraged and give up that we would be overwhelmed and conclude that in the end the juice isn't worth the squeeze. And so we would just trail off, give up, lose our energy, lose our joy, and begin to go after whatever feels more immediately satisfying in this life. So here in verse 58, Paul pleads with us, my beloved brothers and sisters, he says, be steadfast, not shaken, not blown off course by disheartening events or the accumulation of disappointments. He says there, be immovable. He uses that word one other place in all of his letters. He uses that word when he writes to the Colossian church. He tells them, he says, be immovable. He says, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Paul says, be immovable. Don't put your hope anywhere else, in money, in success, entertainment, power, fame, marriage, children. Don't put your hope anywhere else. Be steadfast and immovable. You see, Paul sees we have a wonderful source of strength to help us live our lives this way. It's in that therefore at the beginning of verse 58. Therefore, he says, do all of these things. Be steadfast and immovable. Therefore, abound in the work of the Lord. Even in this world, 
What's the therefore pointing back towards? What he tells us there in verse 57. We have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has conquered death on our behalf. Therefore, he says, be immovable, be steadfast, abound in the work of the Lord. Because Jesus has given us victory over death, we can keep going. Our work does not terminate at the grave. The results that you might see here and now in this life are not the end. They're not the final word. Your service, your abounding in the work of the Lord will echo throughout eternity. God has promised his people a reward that they can never lose. I think our strength is also there at the end of the verse. He says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says, abound in the work of the Lord, brothers and sisters, knowing. Think about all the things that you do because you know they're true, even though you can't see them. Right? You leave early knowing that there's going to be traffic on the roads. You save your money knowing that the bank is FDIC insured. You eat lightly knowing that the Easter feast is going to be huge. Paul says, we abound in the work of the Lord knowing something. We are steadfast and immovable because there's something we know that we can't see with our eyes, but we're certain of it. Knowing, since this is true, we can keep working. And it's not in vain. Death makes it seem like a life invested in the things of the Lord is squandered. But brothers and sisters, you know better. You know that in the Lord, in the risen and exalted and one day returning Lord Jesus, that your work is not in vain. On that day, when the dead are raised, when death gives way to life, when the trumpet sounds and we can finally taunt toothless and impotent death, you can be sure that not a moment spent in the service of the Lord will be wasted, that none of it will have turned out to be in vain. Brothers and sisters, the great waste is if we were to live our lives now as if this is all there is, as if our only reward and our only hope is this life. But the Lord Jesus is risen. The clock is ticking on death. And we can be sure. We can be steadfast. We can be immovable. We can abound in the work of the Lord because this will all be worth it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your great love. Our hearts resonate with what we read the prophet Isaiah writing so many centuries ago. We long for that day when we will feast with you and we will cry out that we are finally with our God and that we are seeing his redemption and salvation. Lord, you have given us the victory through the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we praise you as the risen and triumphant one. We pray that you would come back quickly and, and usher in all uh, that you have told us about in your word. Holy Spirit, would you help us to live as people shaped by this truth? Would you help us to be immovable? 
Help us to be steadfast. Help us, we pray, to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labors are not in vain. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.